Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. You probably don't need us to tell you this, but crime has changed. Like, I mean a lot. And here on the podcast, and specifically in Albuquerque, we've talked about a record number of homicides in 2021. We've talked about organized retail crime. That's the idea of some of the toughest criminals in the city constantly robbing or stealing from big box stores that either fuel or lead to other crimes. This week, though, we're not so much talking about the kinds of new crime, but really how people organize, plan, communicate about, and ultimately execute crime. These days, as law enforcement will tell you, a lot of that planning and even boasting has moved online, and increasingly, it's all over different social media platforms. While there may be a crime scene APD investigates, in some cases, there may not be immediate tangible evidence to suggest who's involved or who to look into. Part of that challenge has forced police investigators to go online. Within the last year, the Albuquerque Police Department has launched what it's calling a digital intelligence unit with a team of civilian employees who gather evidence by digging into and analyzing suspects' online footprints. APD highlighted the newer digital team's work in a recent news conference, also announcing it would expand this evidence-gathering team from three people to seven. The department is also planning to expand the cases they're overseeing from exclusively homicides to other crimes. This week, we're talking to one of the people who's been central to this effort within APD, Kyle Hartsock. He's the deputy commander overseeing APD's criminal investigations division. He's also someone with a long history of investigating cybercrime. Kyle Hartsock is a former detective with BCSO, a special agent in charge of criminal investigations with the district attorney's office. And now you're over at APD helping out with their division. So Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. First, I wanted to ask if you could just give like a quick description. How would you describe this new digital intelligence unit? They are the area's newest experts in understanding, capturing, and analyzing the digital footprint that people leave behind day in and day out. And they're using that to put together criminal investigations. Uh, They work hand in hand with our detectives. And right now it's focused a lot on our homicide cases to bring new types of physical evidence forward that in this day and age, when we go to trial in front of a jury, they expect to see this. They don't want to see a trial accusing someone of murder without more than just a witness's statement, right? They expect to see DNA and fingerprints, but now they also expect to see video surveillance. They expect to see text messages. They expect to see phone records and how phones move around or Facebook posts. And that is what this team does full-time plus. So what would you say is the mission statement for this team? I mean, I don't think we have a mission statement right now, but they feel a, uh, feel a big gap in criminal investigations that prior to specializing in it, Detectives were just asked to also have this as a skill on top of other skills, and it allowed the deprioritization of this type of evidence to occur based on the comfort that the detective had with working with digital evidence and how they saw it as a priority. This team considers it the top priority, and it's all they work on. So it it just makes sense, right, that if the bad guys are on social media, the police should be too. You know, how was this unit finally created? Well, you know, 
It's great that you bring that up. In, in 2016, the United States Supreme Court, in a ruling on cell phones and a criminal case, said that, and this is in 26 years ago, Americans compulsively carry cell phones with them all the time. So six years ago, this is this this is before TikTok even existed. I mean, so many things that didn't even happen then. And here's the Supreme Court, kind of the oldest, grumpiest lawyers in the country, and they're like, everyone has a cell phone, duh. Like, of course they do, yeah. right? We can just presume they have a cell phone. So really around that time is when I, I started to realize with my experience, we, we have to do this more professionally and it needs to be a full-time thing that we're looking at. And the DA's office is really where that opportunity was was realized with Raul Torres and him allowing this idea and this creation to really take hold. And now at APD, we're expanding it even more. We know from, I think, experience in the work of reporting that you're going online, you're doing research, and that is central to, say, figuring out a story, sometimes figuring out a person you're reporting on. But I, I can also recall in the past stories about coworkers who maybe have experienced crime themselves uh, having to do the research and the sleuthing about who they think it was who who did this to them, having to do that on their own. And so so I wanted to just say, like, can you take us back to what it was before this unit? Because it seems like that this would basically be something that detectives, as I understand, would just sort of have to maybe almost self-train. And it wasn't necessarily getting a, a direct set of attention and skills um, in the past. So what was it like before this unit? What, what it was like is if the cop had their own Facebook page, then they knew enough to be dangerous looking at a criminal's Facebook page. That was about their only requirement. Most cops didn't like or care for Facebook. So if they didn't have it, guess what? They didn't look into it. And I remember at the sheriff's office, it was interesting. We get calls from school resource officers about this Instagram flare up, you know, uh, someone's images, someone's nudes got sent. And after a while I was like, hey guys, you know, you can't just call us every time. You're gonna actually have to learn what Instagram is. It's not this scary prickly thing that if you download it on your phone, all of a sudden you're a 17 year old girl, you know, at the mall, right? It's it's just a communication platform, but it can handle media. And so we said, we got to train the cops to be more comfortable with it. But even then, they're only ever going to be so comfortable. We also have to have our own in-house experts. And you, you know, I like to compare it to uh, DNA and blood evidence and fingerprints, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Initially, that was a really niche kind of like science. Like, yeah, there's some guy at the university who says he can test blood. Um, but now, because we started to capture and keep that evidence, look at all these DNA cases getting solved year in and year out. Uh, but at the time, the cops weren't doing it. They didn't care about collecting that evidence. Um, they had their own investigative methods. Police departments, they taught the cops how to do it better, but they actually just started their own labs. We have one right now. We have scientists that work at the lab who do all the blood evidence. We don't expect the cops to actually run the DNA machine. We're taking that same mentality and we're applying it to a lot of this digital forensic work. So now officers are being trained to like collect that evidence maybe. And then you have like an in-house group of experts. Yeah. And our detective academy, which our third one starts next week, I actually teach one of the courses that takes up an entire day on just that. And what we're doing is we're not trying to teach them how to do everything when it comes to this, but we want to make them aware of the capabilities 
that are out there because we need them to be the quarterbacks of the team. They got to know what their receiver can do or what a running back can do. I don't need them to actually do it though. They just got to know that guy can run that route, fly left, get there in four and a half seconds. And if they throw the ball there, it's going to hit. So as long as they know that, we have the experts that will actually do the work. That's a good analogy. And, you know, these days we do, like Chris said, run into some challenges, like as journalists trying to validate original posts that we find online. You know, is this really who we think it is type of confirmation? How can we be positive before, you know, going to air with this information? I assume it's very similar, probably even to a higher standard in law enforcement. What kind of evidence does your team look for and, and how do they do it? Yeah, I mean, identification of who the person that's holding a phone or posting on social media is the, the biggest principle that we have. It's not, it's not good enough just to find the text or the photo or the video. We have to give it an attribute to someone because in court, the defense correctly is going to say, great evidence, prove it's my client. So we actually start our analysis by proving it's the client, right? Um, and we do that lots of different ways. And a lot of them are, you know, super hard to maybe understand. Just go ahead and look at your own social media right now. How would, how would I know it's you, right? And imagine, remember, I'm going to write a search warrant to Instagram. So they're going to, they're going to tell me everything behind the scenes too. How hard would it be to associate you, you with an account or with a phone? Um, most of the crimes that we investigate are crimes of, 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 of passion or crimes of emotional responses. They're not super premeditated crimes, right? So people have these things on them or they have their accounts active or they're posting things, then that crime happens. Um, it doesn't take a whole lot of digging sometimes to uncover who they are and set up the motive for it. Can you tell us about some of the cases that you have solved with this new unit or been able to make arrests for? Um, I know you mentioned during the news conference that there were some cases that were old and able to go back and sort of uncover new elements. You know, I think one that's, it's already done. So it's easier to talk about as a great example was the, the defendant's name and he's now convicted. So he's a convicted murderer named Orlando Johnson. And this, this crime starts with the victim texting three people on the, in an early morning saying, I got beat up really bad. I think, you know, I think I'm really hurt. Can you help me? One of them finally responds and goes and picks her up. She says that her boyfriend, Orlando Johnson, hit her last night. She goes to the hospital and she dies. Orlando Johnson gets arrested. He denies involvement, says, we got into a verbal fight, but I left. And you know what? She's has a high-risk lifestyle. She's a drug addict. There's, we were staying in this hotel up in the Heights and people are in and out all the time. I don't know what happened to her, but it wasn't me. So as the case was nearing getting closer to to trial, the prosecutor had a real worry that like how do we how do we put him in the room, right? We we we, we can establish they had a relationship, but she did have a high risk lifestyle, right? We only need only one juror has to believe that someone else could have come in the room, and we get a hung jury or we get an acquittal. Well, in this case, uh, we were able to work with uh, with Google with search warrants, and Google was able to tell us that his phone wasn't only in the area. It told us the exact room inside the hotel it was all night long. Wow. So it went from, I left and I slept at a park nearby to, no, your phone was actually right right here. Like, and here's a map of the hotel and it's like U-shaped and here's this overhead thing and here's the Google GPSs and they're all hitting here all night long. Mm. 
the defense saw that to sign the plea deal within a couple of weeks. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to trial on that. Right. So we're able to turn this kind of maybe case into, into, you know, almost an instant win once they saw that information. One more good one. I'll, I'll tell you, there was a case against Johan Santi Esteban, who was accused of killing four people in four weeks back in 2016, just a rampage. The murders wouldn't get connected though, until the third murder, when a unique casing was matched up with these two previous. So initially, the homicide units were responding out, and these are all just separate individual murders. The casings match up. State police ends up pulling Johan over uh, in Santa Rosa in one of the victim's cars. Johan doesn't make a statement. His girlfriend in the car says, I was there for all of them. He robbed these people and shot them. So he gets indicted. They go to trial. She testifies. She took a deal. She testifies and says, I watched him do it. Well, guess what? She's a recovering heroin addict. She took a deal. So the defense plays up. You took a deal. Jury comes back and they hung. They can't, they can't be convinced either way that this guy did it, even though they had a witness say, I was in the room. I watched him shoot that person for this reason. Wasn't enough to convince a jury. We looked at the digital evidence in the case, some phones that were in the car that were just never reviewed. His phone records, no one ever got. We're able to get those, map them out, read through text messages, get at a whole level of context to it. And in this case, we found that Johan lived on East Central and the I-25 corridor between two casinos for months at a time. This person that was killed, Matthew Severinhouse, was killed near Montgomery and Tramway in his driveway while going to work at a Target that morning. His mom was actually making coffee, heard the gunshots, and walked out and saw her son dead in the driveway. Out of all his cell phone records for a two-month period, only one time was he at the area of Montgomery and Tramway. So for two months before the murder, we can never actually put Johan Santi Esteban at Montgomery and Tramway until the morning of the murder two hours before. We gave that to the jury, plus we added the context to some of the text messages between him and his girlfriend to kind of diffuse the defense's theory that the girlfriend had set him up and it was some other guy. Jury took about two hours and convicted him of murder. We then gave a report on what the other three murders was gonna say with this evidence. And within a couple months, his defense lawyer agreed, signed a plea deal for all of the murders. So it went from a hung jury, like we maybe can't even convict this guy because the evidence was gonna be the same in every case. Every case, his girlfriend was gonna to have to say he did it. And in every case, a jury was gonna struggle with, do we believe her? Do we think she's being honest? The only difference of the hung jury versus the second case was the testimony about the digital evidence. The jury convicted, then he took a plea deal for all of it. I'll spend the rest of his life in prison now. So in that case, did you have to refile the charges to get it in front of a second jury or was just was this just one of the other murders? He had four murder cases. So the first one was refiled, but he was being held on four different murder charges. So they just went to the next murder case, essentially. Um, but it was all every case had the same evidence. It was the gun matches, but we never recovered the gun. Um, his girlfriend is going to say, I watched him do it. And that is the evidence. The only difference was the digital evidence. Is it easy to find this stuff? Because I think about just even over the last several years, you know, there's, there's the conversations about privacy rights, some companies dedicated towards more encryption. Is it still easy or, or doable to find this stuff? It, it is. And it isn't. 
you know, the companies we work with, I'll say they are very protective of their users' information. And we don't ever go to these companies and ask them for the information without a judge reviewed and signed search warrant, or we declare it's an emergency, right? We've used this information on search and rescue missions where someone's called 911. There was one in particular when I was with the sheriff's office, she got lost in the Rio Perco trying to go to a baby shower and she was over 70 years old. She was by herself. And she said her truck flipped. She couldn't see the Sandia mountains anymore. And she had no idea where she was. And she, but she could call 911. We worked with the with Verizon and started making maps, looking at roads out there. Um, she'd have to sp- have to spend one night out there as we got this all. To- we got called out about 10 p.m. By next day around noon, we got the helicopter up and we had a specific area inside of a, about an 80 square mile plot of desert land, and we were able to find her in the middle of the Roparco. And the helicopter was able to go down. We had to abandon one of the detectives. We said, "Get out of the seat. You gotta just stay here. We'll be back." put her on there and brought her to it. So, you know, in cases like that, we don't send warrants, but the companies are like, we're trying to save a life. Here's all the data you need. If it's just a criminal investigation, these companies have very high thresholds. They have their own internal legal teams that review it. And trust me, if they think our warrant is is not up to snuff, they'll tell us and they won't give us the data. So, and we appreciate that. We, we wanna do things the right way. Um, so there are privacy protections in place, but at the end of the day, these companies are all trying to do what? They're trying to make money and survive. And that data they collect from everyone is by and large how they make money. That leads me to another question about the tech companies who we know play a central role in helping with these investigations. I know in the news conference, you mentioned Snapchat is now suspending user accounts when someone sends or posts photos of those little blue pills we now know as fentanyl. Are these social media apps and companies, you know, more cooperative these days with law enforcement or getting more experienced maybe with an increase in requests that they get from departments like APDs? You know, what I've learned and what the companies will tell us is this, when every single tech company starts, they never envision they're going to be here getting a warrant from the Albuquerque Police Department saying, help prove this murder. None of them are. And to each and every company, them working with law enforcement is a pure overhead expense. They have to dedicate engineers to it. They have to dedicate, I mean, some of the bigger companies have virtual call centers set up for law enforcement from all over the world that calls in, right? Um, So it's just pure overhead costs for them. So they're sympathetic, but they're also not on the cutting edge of innovation for helping law enforcement, right? But to me, I'm okay with it. Like, I I get it. They can't just give us everything we want because why would they, right? They need to focus on their actual business model. so they, they are helpful, but it's it's to a degree. And so some of the stuff that we even teach cops is, you know, don't get mad at Google or Facebook, right? Like it's, it's literally some dude on an hourly job checking in, trying his best to navigate his own internal system and, and help us at the same time. Uh, it's not the be- biggest and brightest, you know, stars of the, the, the business. Seems like a big learning curve for everyone. It's a, for, for everyone. You know, when we work with the real small companies, that's when it's really interesting because they, it's, it's like two, I had one case was a child exploitation case, but it was two guys that were Stanford students created a chat app and they had no idea that child pornography was all over the thing. And they installed some software that was for free from Microsoft that would help scan for it and then report it to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which the law requires. 
And it was just automatic. It was just like, hey, just install it and hit go. Well, they did. And then it just, all these things came in and all of a sudden they were just getting blown up by law enforcement. And in my case, we arrested a, a pediatric doctor here in Albuquerque. So it went federal. It was all these motion hearings. These guys were having to fly out to Albuquerque <laughs> and they're like, I was just like, we just thought it'd be a fun chat app. And now I'm in this federal criminal hearing with a pediatric doctor who might spend the rest of his life in prison all because we made this app. So again, they don't see it coming. They were cooperative though, but they're just like, I'm an engineer, man. I don't know what to tell you about this stuff. They don't, that's not what they're thinking about when they make the tools. The tools have been around increasingly over the years, but I mean, you know, you go back to even the nineties, right? Chat apps are first started coming out. What do you think has taken so long to get to this point where we're really turning resources and attention to this now? I think it's just the, the the lack of education and the natural learning curve that takes place. And it's not just with cops or police departments. It's with anyone to really, truly understand how these tools work and how can I use them. I mean, go on TikTok right now. What's the funnest videos or old people interacting with the application, right? It's easy to find some 22-year-old dancing. It's really rare to find the 60-year-old doing it, and we all love it, right? So there, there's a big learning curve to it, but it's also a mindset. And I can tell you, you know, we look at like the, the fentanyl drug market, right, here in Albuquerque. And I, I take the philosophy that it is like a new city area that has just spawned up out of nowhere. And you can only get it through your phone. You can only get to this part of the city through your phone. I see it as a, I see it as physical streets and houses and buildings and shops and stores. Um, you know, back in the the '90s and the early 2000s, when phones were just kind of coming online, cell phones, I should say, right? You could still really only call people. It really wasn't its own area. But I'm telling you, you can go on Snapchat now, and you can. I mean, we've seen video like three, four minute long videos on how to pack um, LSD right? How to cut ecstasy. I mean, they're giving tutorials and they're showing their faces. And these are people in Albuquerque. Like we know who they are. They have no fear of it. Right. And they are, they are on their corner of this block advertising what they do in a very easily accessible way with no fear of law enforcement. And what's scarier is no fear of people that want to rob them. And this is where we see some of our homicides, some of our shootings come up, is that it's really easy to find a drug dealer in Albuquerque. And if you want to rob them, there, there's dozens a day, if not more, that we can just scroll through and see and say, hey, can you meet me here? I'll buy this. But you have ill intentions. One of the things I noted from the news conference was the reaction from one of your team members, who's also a mom. And she was basically saying, you know, it is terrifying to see people planning, talking about, sharing specific things on the internet that you all investigate. You're a parent too. Um, it does seem like younger people are being targeted online in a lot of ways, which is scary for me as a parent. What do you think parents should be aware of these days that maybe they aren't? Well, I, I encourage parents, I encourage everyone, if there's something you think someone in your family is doing that you don't like or you just don't understand, I encourage them to do it or ask them about it, right? If they like playing Minecraft a whole bunch, you should maybe like play Minecraft with them for a second. Just like fill it out. If they watch YouTube videos of a Minecraft streamer, why don't you watch one of them with them? Listen to the language that's used, right? See, do you, would you, do you approve of it? If whether it's an app, hey, download Snapchat, make a group chat with all your kids or your siblings on there, be, be a part of it, right? Show your kids one, it's normal to be on there. 
this isn't taboo. If you make them feel like it's taboo, they'll treat it like it's taboo, right? Which means they'll hide it from you more often. Okay. They won't want to talk to you about it um, or it's aware that you're on it. Normalize the behavior because Snapchat and Facebook, these are multi-billion dollar companies who are not going anywhere. They have boards, they have lawyers, they are trying to operate ethically, you know, good companies, right? Um, So talk to them about it, be familiar with it. And always, always, always as a parent, right? You've got to have trust with your kids as much as you can. Now, as they get older and they become teenagers, sure, I can ask anyone, and I do this in training sometimes, what's the biggest secret you've never told your parents, right? And they're, oh my God, I went to Wada's this one time. I mean, they just start going off, right? (laughs) But try to get trust. And I tell my kids, you know, my oldest is 10 right now. And I say like, hey, if you see something scary on there, you know, you've got to come tell me about it. Like, because eventually you will. You're going to see something that kind of freaks you out. Um, and that's, I mean, it's not okay that it happened, but it's going to happen and tell me about it. And he had that experience with TikTok six months ago. He doesn't like this creepy videos and some, I don't know, some ghostly, ghastly thing happened and he couldn't sleep all night. And I'm, I'm getting frustrated. I'm like, why aren't you asleep 10 year old? Like you got to like super be in bed. And he's like this stupid TikTok video. And I already had the parent monitoring on. I time capped his TikTok every day. And I said, the only other solution is because I can't actually, I can't curate your videos is let's just take it off your phone. He goes, yes. I said, done, man. And I went in the parent control app uh, that I have through Google. I hit the off button on TikTok. It uninstalled it from his phone. And he was, he was happy as to be. But I was appreciative. He told me, hey, I had a bad experience. It's keeping me awake. I said, take it off. He was good with it. We did. And, and he's still good with it. So to me, that, man, that's the goal right there. Let your kids tell you the problem. You try to fix it as a parent and go from there. You know, how do you handle the conversations and devices with your children? You said you have children ranging in age from like 10 to even toddler age. Yeah. Do you let them have devices like young or do you think, cause a lot of parents are like, you know, social media shouldn't be for young kids. I'm going to, you know, keep my a phone away out of my child's hands until they're 16 or 18. To, to each parent their own, right? For sure. You know, and I have, I have stepkids too, they're older. So I've got to also learn through them. Right. But I'll, you know, I know it's a podcast I'm showing you guys, but Google has a family app that allows me to make them their own email addresses. And I'm showing you guys right now, it has each of their pictures on here. But when I log into their phone under that email address, it knows that it's a kid account. It knows that I'm the parent that could control it. And my wife's on here too. And then once I'm on here, it can tell me, uh, I can limit how much time they're on it. It can tell me what apps they're using. And you can see YouTube kids, one hour and 11 minutes today. (laughs) My 10 year old's been on, he's been on Netflix for also one hour and 11 minutes. Uh, it tells me his location. I can just look, I'm going to lock his phone right this second. It just locked. Oh no! He's and if so he's mad. on it, oh, well, you might see it ring in a second, right? <laughs> so I'll unlock it. Um, I can set time limitations on it. You can see three hours is his cap for the day. He doesn't always use it, but if he does, he'll have to call me and say, can you add more time? And I can actually go through and at least on a high level, be like, what have you been doing on your phone? Right? Is this like productive? Uh, I can make it that I have to approve every app he puts on or he can up to a certain level. It's actually really, really easy and convenient to do. So I just do this with with my kids. Um, I can see what they can do. I can limit it. Um, but I also, again, I sit next to him and I'll, I'll just say, my five-year-old loves Roblox right now. I'm like, what, do you, what game are you playing? 
what are you doing on it right now? And she was a birthday cake. Her head was a birthday cake. Her arms were birthday cakes. And I was like, that's adorable. And I was like, what's the <laughs> point? And she's like, leave me alone. And I'm like, well, I'm going to watch you, sweetheart. And then, and then she just, she's doing really cute Roblox things. So to me, just, you got to be involved with them, yeah. no matter what their hobby is, whether it's a phone or dance or sports, like be involved, understand it enough to, to be dangerous, right? This effort to like curb cyber crime, does it at any point feel futile? Like, you know, you get a win with Snapchat for suspending user accounts that post fentanyl, or you take down a, a guy for murder even. While it is like a good thing and a productive thing moving forward, do you ever feel like, well, these criminals are just going to find a different platform or a different chat room? Well, I mean, I think that's my experience as a cop for 18 years is that's always going to be an issue, right? And, um, you know, crime is relative to what we're used to. So do we ever solve it all? We can't. It's just impossible. And I can also tell you, it's hard in the moment to measure how successful you are. And so I tend to not worry too much about it. Six months ago, a year ago, the last five years, I think it's very interesting to look at those trends and see it. But I keep my team focused on let's do what we can right now. Let's try to find the most high impact users of these platforms or in homicides. Obviously, we're just going to work the homicide all the way through no matter what. But if it's proactive, like, hey, who's literally trying to gain the most attention on Instagram right now with dealing fentanyl? I will give you the attention, right? You'll be grateful. It's me, by the way, not the crew that wants to rob you and take it by force, right? You, you won't say thank you to me. Later on though, you'll feel good when you see the other families that got affected by the death and the destruction that comes from it. So that's what we try to focus on now. How effective is it? We can't really measure till later and I don't think we'll ever fully solve it. But you know, Snapchat taking down those accounts is like an amazing move, I think. And they haven't publicized it because I think people aren't comfortable with them. Um, why are you looking at my pictures? I don't know, as a parent, as a cop, as a member of this community, that drug is really deadly and the amount of attention it brings by other ill-intentioned people is really deadly. If they say it violates the terms of use and kills the account, I'm, I'm all for it. So this team though, um, just asking about the, the team and the work that's doing in the future. I know you mentioned in the news conference that they had been assigned to essentially every homicide that comes through um, over the last year. The idea is to maybe open it up towards more crimes. What are some of those crimes that maybe you, you hope to focus on next? I mean, sexual assaults is obviously the next real, real big one in there. And in digital media, I mean, it's huge, whether it's two people had just met and a sexual assault accusation comes from it, or it's years of sexual abuse by some position of power, you know, dynamic going on. Um, but also our other gun violence crimes where it's not a death, right? Because the difference of a lot of our shootings where they don't die and they die is a bullet a quarter of an inch to the left or the right. The the motive was the same. The gun was the same. The the interactions between the people were the same. One person's luckier than the other and and that's it. And right now those are two different units that investigate those crimes, but we really have to look at solving them and stopping future ones the exact same way. So gun violence, sexual assaults, and I can tell you DIT already has helped in child abuse cases. Um, it helps put parents at the home when the injuries are occurring. They're already helping in sexual assault cases. Uh, we just recently issued an arrest warrant on one. There's digital evidence involved. So they are doing it. 
but we've made, we've maintained homicide as their priority. I know you said that civilians are part of this team. Can you just give us a broad view of like who makes up this team? The whole team is civilians right now. Uh, we now call them professional work staff, by the way, we're okay. trying to, the chief Medina is trying to, trying to push out and I applaud it, the use of the term of civilian, cause it almost sounds, you know, substandard to a police officer. Um, so the, two of them come from Albuquerque. One comes from out of state. Um, they all have, uh, two have master's degrees. One actually has a PhD in criminology. So just a real deep understanding of these systems. Um, but most of what they're doing, they were taught, right? And anyone can read a text message thread and kind of get it because you guys all text. So does a jury, right? So when we show those texts to a jury, it's not real technical. But the difficult part of their job is how do you take, you know, gigabytes and gigabytes of data, go through it, compare it with your other evidence in the case, right? Which video surveillance or witness statements or OMI reports or DNA reports. And we have to comprehensively build this timeline to explain how, how it fits in. And sometimes that digital evidence is 90% of the evidence we have, sometimes it's 10, but they have to put it together. They have to write reports on it. Their reports tend to be 40 to 60 pages long, which will include screenshots, they'll include all kinds of things. Um, and they have to phrase it in a way that a, a jury can read it and understand it in layman terms, right? They can't get too technical. So that's where their education and experience really comes in. I'm able to teach them most of the technical stuff and most of the tools that they make for law enforcement. They're like, you know, we're drawn with crayons here. Like you can't break these tools. It's really hard to do it, but they're really good at the other part. They can put it all into a comprehensive report and they can testify about it in court. The department's adding four more of these positions four more. very, very soon. So the team is now three, it's gonna grow to seven. So it's gonna more than double. And that's where we're now looking to expand the types of crimes and also the speed in which we can review this. So it's a really, it's a really solid commitment from the mayor's office and the chief that, man, this works and it's worked really quickly to help our clearance rates. You know, a thing I'll mention too, you know, our clearance rate a year ago was 47%. It's now 93% as of today. Um, for homicides? For homicides. And we have we had a record year last year. We are on that same pace right now. And so it's not that homicides have gone down, so the percentages go up because we're solving the same. They're still very high, and our percentage of clearance, cleared cases has is, is doubled in this one-year period where we've really instituted not just this program, but other programs that really look at these cases and say, focus on physical evidence, get physical evidence. That's how we get these things across the finish line. So we're really proud of that change. Thanks again to Deputy Commander Kyle Hartsock with the Albuquerque Police Department for taking the time to talk with us today about all of this. There's, I think, a lot listeners can take away from his discussion about social media and what parents even should just at least be aware of uh, that their kids are doing online on devices these days. And yeah, just a whole other facet to this community. I'm a big fan of saying you really need to take the time to learn it for yourself. Don't just lean on other people to teach technology to you and to hand you something that works. So, um, yeah, Chris, it, it, the it, IT man <laughs> of the newsroom. Yeah, this, this maybe comes from a little bit of personal triggering experience, as you might tell. Uh, we appreciate you guys listening. If you have any questions, comments, story ideas, you can always send those to us individually. 
Uh, I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com, also on Twitter at chrismckeetv. And I'm at gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. Thank you.